0: Greetings and salutations, I'm Vlad Tenev, CEO and co-founder of Robinhood and this is Under the Hood. We are witnessing a revolution in retail investing and personal finance is more culturally relevant than it's ever been before. Amidst all this, new questions are emerging about how our financial system works and how our system needs to evolve to better serve the people. Through a series of interviews with some very innovative principal thinkers, we'll be lifting the hood on the world of investing, unpacking some of the most complex topics facing the financial industry, and having some fun along the way. We hope you enjoy. It.
1: I believe blockchain will make everything a chip on the table, right? That's what it's, I think, designed to do. Like, so Bitcoin, store of value, digital gold, blockchain as a whole, everything will be a chip on the table. My focus is the person, the creator of the economy, right?
0: In this episode, we're gonna be chatting with NBA player, entrepreneur, and innovative investor, Spencer Dinwiddie. Throughout his career, Spencer has defied the odds overcoming injuries and setbacks, and becoming known on and off the court for his bravery to pursue unconventional paths and his willingness to take risks in the investing space. Outside of his day-to-day as point guard for the Brooklyn Nets, Spencer is an avid entrepreneur, having founded a number of businesses, including Kairos and Galaxy, and is famous for tokenizing his NBA contract. He's also passionate about blockchain and crypto in general. We're excited to talk to him about all this today. Thanks for being here, Spencer. I appreciate it. I really love basketball and I really love finance, so I was really excited to have this conversation. I mean, I've been an NBA fan ever since I came into this country. The first sport that I watched was basketball and I grew up doing it. So. I'd love to get in and talk to you about finance and all the cool stuff that you've been up to, but I thought maybe we'd start talking a little bit about you personally growing up and a little bit about basketball, if that works for you.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. Offline, before we uh, start chatting, we are talking about LA a little bit. You spent some time in Malibu. Um, I'm an LA guy, born and raised, went to high school at Taft, have played basketball since I was four years old. I pretty much grew up with Kobe's career, to give you an idea, of you know, who my favorite player was and how I kind of fell in love with the game and all that. From there, I was fortunate enough to play division one at the University of Colorado and then obviously journey to the NBA, but I'm 27 now, about to turn 28, basketball's been a part of my life yeah. since I was like four. So the vast majority of my life, a quarter century or so has pretty much been filled with uh, you know, the pursuit of greatness within uh, within that craft specifically. Did you know from a pretty
0: young age that you wanted to try to be a professional basketball player?
1: Yeah, virtually immediately. Like there was nothing else that I wanted to do. And my decisions kind of charted that path. You know, I mean, the the college decision, like my final choice for Colorado and Harvard. And I wanted to go to the NBA. So I chose Colorado because it was in the Pac-12 and would give me the requisite basketball exposure to give me a chance at, you know, being an early entrant. So it's always been the methodology that that was the North Star.
0: Yeah, one thing that I noticed when I was looking at your numbers is you've had some challenges, right? It wasn't like you were McDonald's All-American, averaging 20, 30 points a game, 10 rebounds a game. It kind of took a while, and you had steady improvement year after year. I was looking at some of your NBA stats, you know, your rookie season, you were averaging four points a game, 4.8 sophomore season. And then there's just the steady improvement up till... uh, Last year, last year was really a, a great year for you, averaging over twenty points per game. And was that kind of a milestone for you getting to that twenty points per game marker? How did you think about it?
1: I would say so. There, you know, those are one of the goals you set forth as a child. And you know, you say, Hey, I want to be a twenty-point game scorer in the league, I want to win championships. Like there's a lot of things that you kind of think about and want to do, being able to accomplish that and, and play all the pre bubble games and and, and show that durability and and leading the team to the playoffs and all that stuff. It was definitely something that I'll remember for the rest of my life and something that I'm very proud of, quite honestly. I I know there's only several hundred people in the history of the the game to ever average 20, and then you start talking about more than five assists uh, per game as well, and and leading a winning team and some of the game winners over the last couple years and all that other stuff, like, you know, it puts you in elite company, and there's still much more to go. Like, I'm only probably halfway through my career, so, I want to make the second half the better half, but it has been a fun start and upward trajectory so far.
0: Yeah, one thing I hear from a lot of players, it's the work that you put in during the offseason that really makes a huge difference. As you look at how you train and how you prepare and maybe compare it to some of the other players, what do you think some of the differences are and what are some of the secrets that have allowed you to get better so quickly and so consistently?
1: When really looking at it, there's just, it's what I do, quite honestly. I mean, I I don't know the the secret sauce, but it's like, I I put all my intention, all my energy, all that stuff behind it. Sometimes people look at me as like the crazy blockchain guy in the NBA and stuff like that, and they worry about split focus, but basketball's always been first. It's gonna continue to be that way, and, and I put every ounce of myself into it, and that's what's allowed me to improve, you know? When you're kind of in those competitions in that arena, you know, sometimes it's the first person to blink is the one that's going to lose. And I just feel like the work that I put in, like, they're going to break before I will. And and that's the mentality that I take, you know, onto the court with me every single day. And, and so far, it's uh, proven to be pretty, pretty accurate.
0: You uh, have an injury. You injured your ACL a few games into the season. And I saw it's actually the second time that's happened. The first time you had an ACL injury, was
1: your junior year at Colorado, is that right? Yeah, yeah, so my junior year at Colorado, about halfway through the season, I had a uh, left ACL, MCL, lateral meniscus and medial meniscus tear uh, to my left knee. So pretty much like fully blew it out. That was really tough. And then declared for the draft a couple months later and started my NBA journey kind of coming off of that injury. This one is, is much different. I had a uh, partial tear to my right ACL no real other structural damage. And so, you know, what I'm able to do at three months right now is a world away from what I was able to do at three months then. And just the outlook and, and everything on on this injury, it's actually been pretty easy.
0: That must have been very challenging, right? You're declaring for the draft a couple of months in the future. You're probably planning that out. And then you have this injury. What was going through your mind at that point? How did you push through it? Did you consider sticking around and playing one more season, one more year at Colorado? Or was it basically a point of no return at that point?
1: Yeah, I mean, shoot, when I initially got hurt and, and heard the doom and gloom stories and all that other stuff, I definitely thought about returning. I thought that was kind of my only option. And that was one of the things that was the most heartbreaking because I had played myself to a point where I could have left after my sophomore year, but I went back yeah. just to try to improve my draft stock, wanted to be, you know, high first round. And with the way the season was going, my third year was playing my way into that type of conversation. We. I believe we only lost two games at that point we're really rolling. So, you know, it seemed like the, the dream might've died. It was the mental battle early that was toughest. And when I got through kind of the acute phase of the injury and, and started to evaluate whether or not um, I could go to the draft or not, you know, to hear the feedback that I was gonna go in either low first or early second, but I wasn't gonna go undrafted, like somebody would take a chance on me. I felt like, you know, if somebody takes a chance on me, I get in their gym and their arena with the way that I work and the confidence in myself and my ability to play the game, then I'm gonna make it happen. And that's kind of how I bet on myself, one of the times I bet on myself. And, you know, it was a rocky, it wasn't easy. It wasn't like I just took off immediately. I I had two rough seasons in Detroit, got traded to Chicago, got cut, and then signed to Brooklyn. And that's when kind of, I feel like my career really started, you know, but it's all part of the learning curve and the journey.
0: I read that you had some interesting advice around getting through some of these difficult moments. I think you said either you know you can do something about it, so you do, or you realize you can't do anything about it and, and you let go. Tell me a little bit more about that philosophy.
1: It seems very wise. Thank you. Thank you. To add context to the let go, it's, it's more so me talking about the mental struggles of the anxiety, right? Like I'm never really a guy that says, let go of the rope, right? If you want something, you fully believe in yourself and you want to go chase it, chase it, you know? And it's not on me to judge, your life. I want you to live your life to the best of your ability. And the only person that can really define that is you. You know what I mean? But when talking about the mental struggles of things, because people ask that, especially relating to the first injury and now obviously to the second, I look at it very simplistically. If I can do something about it, why would I trip out? I have control. So if I have control over something, then, you know what I'm saying? Impact your control, like exert your control and try to steer it in the direction you want to steer it. Now, if you realize that you can't do anything about it and you don't have control, well, then why are you tripping? Like, there's literally nothing you can do. People ask, like, why I'm chill or why I kind of take things as they come and, and can stay relatively even keel. I try to just be solution oriented because those are my two philosophies. If I can change it and I can get what I want or put it in that path and steer it in that direction, then I should do what's in my power to make that happen. And if I can't, then this is me wasting a lot of energy and time over nothing because whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And we're just going to roll with it.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think I saw a clip of Kobe saying something very similar about his philosophy. It's like, you have emotions that come over you. You kind of just want to like examine them and separate yourself from the emotions and just kind of understand that, You're feeling that way, not try to run away from them because then they build up, but really almost impartially and coolly look at why what's going through your head is going through your head and understand that. And then you can start harnessing it for positive ends. Yeah,
1: it's kind of like minor principles of stoicism. Yeah, I think Kobe studied that a little bit. It's something I truly like. I don't know if I could be a a full blown stoic, but just being able to kind of step back and evaluate situations you realize it's also never as good. never is bad. It's, life is a full shade of gray. It's just about like evaluating the, the situation, making a good decision or the best decision possible. And you also have peace in that moment too. If you can step back, evaluate a situation and say, okay, I believe in this moment, this is the best decision. Then you keep stacking those positive or not even positive necessarily, but best decisions possible. When you look back on life, you also don't have regrets. And that's one of the big things that I never want to have and never want to live with. Because I think when you're on your deathbed and you know that kind of time is winding down or time is coming, that's the only thing that I think you're really going to be scared of. You know, what I mean, not not so much even like the finality of what's going to happen, but like, oh, uh, I could have been a better basketball player. I could have been a better father. I could have been a better brother. I could have. Those are the things that will really mess yeah. you up. But if you feel like you maximize all those things and you can sit there and look and say, like, brother, I, I loved you with my whole heart, and son, I loved you with my whole heart, and all those things, like. What more is there left to give? You gave yourself and everybody has a beginning and an end and you just have to try to be, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I've read a whole bunch of stoic philosophy. And what I found really interesting about it is it certainly helps you cope with some of the negatives, but, but also the positives as well. I think there can be a lot of disappointment when you go through positive life events. You set this goal for yourself whether it is, you know, being a 20 point per game scorer, hopefully someday winning a championship. And then you get there and maybe for a day you're really excited about it. But then after that, it's over and you're like, okay, what next? I set this goal and I thought that I'd be happy. And you kind of revert to that baseline feeling and they teach you to to appreciate some of the positives and take pause and Kind of imagine what your life would be like if you don't have that, like this negative visualization and really meditate on that, which I thought was pretty interesting. Well, I want to talk a little bit about finance, and I know you've done some really interesting things with crypto. How did you get into that? And specifically, you were the first to try to tokenize your contract, and I want to say that was, what, 2017? So before crypto really hit mainstream culture, I would say, how did you get that idea? What was going through your mind when you were
1: trying to do that? Shoot, my journey into crypto, around like 2014 when I got drafted, I had a friend who you know was in finance tell me to get some Bitcoin. Like most rookies, scared to lose my money, didn't do it. Obviously I regret that I didn't because if I had to put 5,000, 10,000, whatever it is in there back then, We'd be having a great conversation right now, yeah. But I ended up actually getting into it in 2017 after a subsequent conversation, and him telling me to, you know, get in officially. I listened. I got in. I rode the rise in the fall. Like I, not well versed in stocks and bonds and things, but I know about them. Obviously, traditional finance, real estate, things like that. The asymmetrical yeah. yield, obviously, is what captivates people, and and the ability to make money very quickly captivates people. And also, then when it fell. I think for me, it sparked a, a learning curve, right? Like I made some money, but not a ton of money in 2017, but it sparked a learning curve. And you know, you go from Bitcoin and what its principles are, then you dive down deeper, you you hit blockchain and, and you start learning about all these other tokens and what they do well or what they don't do well and how the technology underpins and some they're trying to be currency, some they're really just focused on being smart contract platforms, what that means for different industries, whether it's finance, supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. And so basically I took, All that stuff that I started to learn and tried to apply to my industry and say like, okay, what way are we going? or, Or how can this benefit the basketball realm and the broader entertainment industry as a whole? Basically the way that I went then from there was the entertainment industry as a whole is built off the backs of the fans. As long as the fans spend money, we got a job. As soon as they don't, we don't. You look at sports that don't have a lot of fans. Well, they're athletes and entertainers and whatever it is, they make less money. It's just kind of supply and demand in that respect. So, and what do the fans want? Yeah. They want to be as closely tied to the experience as possible, as closely tied to their favorite athlete, et cetera, as possible. That's really where the idea came from. And I started on that journey in, I want to say like late 2018, that I started down that path in that journey of tokenizing my contract. Successfully did 10% of it last year, so in 2020, during the pandemic, and have just embarked on this complete creator economy. We were trying to liquefy illiquid assets as it pertains to the person so whether that's intellectual property a sports contract interactions whatever it is i believe blockchain will make everything a chip on the table right that's what it's i think designed to do like so bitcoin store value digital gold blockchain as a whole everything will be a chip on the table my focus is the person the creator the economy some people will be real estate or whatever other demographic or piece of whatever it is that they want to focus on but mine is the creator the economy and so with that being said, that's uh, what my new app is designed to do. That's just my full focus.
0: And how does it work? Tell me a little bit about the new app.
1: Yeah, so obviously I, I tokenize my contract and put a stamp on the fact that you can do securitization with blockchain technology, being a little bit future focused, yeah. things like that. My app called Galaxy, the creator's galaxy. So Galaxy would see essentially what we do right now is if you look at social medias, you have the traditional layer ones. And that sounds kind of blockchainy because it's layer ones, layer twos, dApps, whatever. But you have your traditional layer ones, Facebook, MySpace, Twitter, Instagram, like the real pillars of the social media community. People gain these followings, they do different things. And then you have these layer twos that focus on monetization. So you have Cameo, OnlyFans, Clubhouse, Patreon, things of that nature, whether it's subscription-based, Dropbox content, et cetera, et cetera, video messages, all that. To start, we want to kind of swallow the layer two. We want to provide a comprehensive service that does all of those layer two features and you interact with your favorite creator through their own personal creator token. If you look at the rallies and the roles and, and people like that right now, they provide a platform to create a token, but then there's really no utility or use for it. People are trying to create use cases and utility for their token, you know what I'm saying, singularly. We feel like in our ecosystem, you already have these interactions baked in and in that app and in that seamless kind of construction so you can have this type of flow, right? Once you you kind of conquer that field is when you start to make token models more dynamic and you start to unlock some of the blockchain underpinning, you start to show people marketplaces, NFTs, things of that nature moving forward.
0: Why does it have to be on the blockchain, this product? What does the blockchain allow you to do that you can't do with a traditional server-based model, for example?
1: Yeah, so in going forward, right? So we're looking at like phase two, phase three, right? So you're looking at securitization, which is more effective on the blockchain. You're looking at NFTs, right? Where you start doing memorabilia, provable scarcity, all those things. Then you start doing like dynamic token pricing within the marketplace with like bonding curves and things of that nature, like all those things. So phase two, phase three, phase four, all need it, and so we introduce it very lightly yeah. in phase one, where our creator tokens are pinned to a dollar, so it's very easy. It's like buying a gift card almost, right? And it's just a very easy kind of education process. So phase one, you don't need it, right? But if we did phase one without it, and then tried to shove all this blockchain in your face, phase two, phase three, then everybody's gonna go, "Whoa!" Like, why is the app changing? What's going on? Versus like, yeah. you kind of half stepped them in even when it's not necessary, but knowing that phase two, phase three and et cetera are coming and it makes it more seamless of a transition from a psychological perspective.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You wanted to start with something a little bit more minimal, but you wanted to have the infrastructure there to support adding more things in the future. And once you build the community, you you give them ability to do more things on it. That's kind of the idea.
1: Bingo, the infrastructure is already laid. Uh, The feature sets, like I said right now, are very familiar. So Cameo, Clubhouse, type of things you can do, and the tokens themselves are pegged to a dollar. So it's going to feel more like a gift card type of transaction, which is very familiar. You get your service, your subscription, whatever it is that you're trying to do with that specific creator. But like I said, once we get to phase two and phase three, when you're talking about securitizing contracts and things of that nature, that's when you'll need that underpinning to really kick in. And it's designed so that the fan and end consumer doesn't even really necessarily have to know But obviously, we built the infrastructure there so we can be not future-proof, but more like future-focused.
0: Yeah. I saw that you said that traditional solutions as they stand are designed to aid the centralized party. And I think that resonates with a lot of new investors, especially in the crypto community. How do you feel like centralized solutions have failed people thus far? Where do you think the biggest opportunities are with decentralization?
1: Uh, Actually, (laughs) This might be kind of controversial, but I think you're actually kind of seeing some of that with like COVID and the vaccine and stuff. As trust in governments and systems and large parties or our previous president, et cetera, kind of break down, people just don't believe in them. And so in distributed ledger systems and decentralized systems, it's not about believing in it. It's a trustless trust. I'm looking at the ledger. I may not know yeah. that Spencer did a transaction with Vlad, but I do know that the transaction happened on the blockchain. I see that A sent money to B or X-Nifty was minted. You know what I mean? And I don't have to listen to the president or trust Big Pharma or whoever it is. I can literally look at the ledger and I'm now comfortable, confident, and secure. So I think that's one of the main things. I just think in society today with where things are heading and you look at Big Brother and all that other stuff, like there's just a breakdown in trust. And so that's what I think the biggest benefit of these distributed ledger technologies will be for the end consumer.
0: The transparency, just the in-depth visibility into exactly how everything works. And maybe not all people are going to understand it, but it's there to understand if you want to put in the work. Yeah, I think that that's actually an interesting point because we have all these tools to communicate. It kind of used to be that if you were a normal person sitting at home, you couldn't communicate to the rest of the world, right? You'd receive your communication from the news. And Back in the 60s and 70s, there were like two or three channels. Then, of course, it got bigger. And now with social media, everyone can talk to each other. In a lot of ways, the institutions and even the governments around the world are, are stuck in the old model. When they go through their day-to-day actions, they're not used to operating in total transparency. But what they didn't anticipate is people will actually fill the void with all of these conspiracy theories of why they're doing the things that they're doing and They don't come out and contradict them or refute them because there's probably thousands of conspiracy theories on why everything's the case. You can't just be refuting conspiracy theories. And I think the only solution is more transparency. So I think you've hit on a good point. The fact that transparency is kind of built in with some of these technologies is a really big advantage for helping people trust them. So I'll ask something related, you know, it was reported in November of last year that you let your agent go, actually, and you took control of your contract and all the trade negotiations yourself. And you hear of this happening once in a while, but it's a pretty unique thing, right? And um, you kind of took ownership of the entire business of yourself. That's a pretty big move. What was it like to take that leap? Was it something you've been thinking about or walk
1: me through that? Yeah, no, it's definitely something I've been thinking about. I love my old agent. I think he's a phenomenal agent, a phenomenal man. You know, obviously Rock Nation did great by me, for sure. So I have no ill feelings or ill will there. I mean, I think overall just understanding the business of basketball and, and understanding like market value and asset and, and things of that nature, like that was kind of my decision. I just wanted a little bit more um autonomy in the direction of my career, which is right for some and not right for others. Like this is not something that I would just tell every single guy to do, but it's just something that can be explored if that's truly where your heart is at. With my app and what I'm trying to do in terms of empowering creators, et cetera, I feel like it lends itself to that type of uh, mentality.
0: Do you feel like with decentralized blockchain technology, at some point in the future, more people will be able to
1: be their own representation and they wouldn't need agents? I mean, I would say in theory, yeah, just because you could get, decentralized data inputs. Um, you could make things more transparent, more kind of X and O's and follow the analytics model and all that. But that's not an industry that I claim to understand fully. So I don't want to be ignorant and say, yeah, death tall agents or anything like that. Like, I think they serve a great purpose. I think they're going to continue to be around for a very long time. I do think obviously better data makes for better arguments. And so maybe the players can argue more with the better data they have. But like, I don't know the timing of that data. I don't know when we're going to get there. I'm just spitballing at this point, but we'll see.
0: Yeah. I think for a long time, there was this meme floating around that athletes have been financially irresponsible. You know, you hear of the anecdotes of people with big contracts, lots of money, then the career comes to an end. And pretty quickly after that, they run out of money, probably not the norm, but you hear about it a lot. However, I think today we're seeing a lot of the worlds of sports and finance converge a little bit more. Have you noticed the change just in the, in the years that you've been in the league? To me, it seems like people are just much more, you hear people talking about finance and sports a lot more. What do you think precipitated that change?
1: I think honestly, it was just the willingness to be open. I think if you go way back, people were always very closed off on both the positive and the negative. So they never told their wins and they also never told their losses. You know, so you didn't hear the stories. Then as people started to be open about their losses and and tell the horror stories, people started to be more open about, hey, I need to learn. And so once the learning process starts, I mean, it's just like anything else. A lot of people catch the bug. You see your peers learning. Learning becomes cool. Learning about investing becomes fun. You know, what real estate deal are you in? And so it becomes locker room conversation. And then, you know, we're competitive beings, we're competitive people, and obviously very intelligent considering that we can make calculations on a basketball court in our head, geometry type calculations in our head, you know, in a split second, we have that astuteness. So when you apply yourself in some of those fields, the trajectory starts to go up. And I really just think, our OGs and, and the people that you know predated us being transparent about losses and then also being transparent about wins, starting a learning curve, guys want to be competitive, wanting to learn, wanting to get more involved and understand what it means for their future and their family's future is uh, what's allowing guys to do better with their money and take care of their money. And I think across the board, you're seeing guys just making the right moves.
0: Do you feel like there's a movement that people are getting started and taking interest in finances earlier? are they going to traditional financial advisors? Are they kind of following the footsteps of how maybe people did it a generation ago? Or do you see an increase in people predominantly doing it themselves and figuring it out in, in these more self-directed platforms?
1: I would say the rise and the increase is on people taking ownership. I'm not gonna say that there's a bunch of people in crypto or anything like that. I just think you know it's a rise of taking ownership. So you can get a Robinhood, you can get on some of these apps and maybe with a little bit of guidance, you're putting some of your discretionary budget over there and you're trying some of this stuff on your own with two or 3% of your wealth. You might have your financial advisor manage the large portion because you're not learning on one of these apps. You're also watching him in a different manner. You're not just saying, here's the money, whatever. That's where everybody's getting a lot better just from the beginning of like, hey, look, I can trust you, but I'm still going to watch you. I think in the past, yeah. times people just gave the money and said, All right, well, we'll see. It's important. But I know some guys make a ton more money than me. And I know some guys make so much money, it's hard for them to track. But in theory, if you have, let's call it three, four sources of income, if you just check your account balance, you know what I'm saying? When those income sources are supposed to drop and you have a rough idea in your head of where you're supposed to be at, if you're not there, you just have to tell them to prove to you why you're not there. You know what I mean? That takes yeah. a once a month or once every two week check-in. You know what I mean? You take 30 minutes to an hour and just say, all right, I think I was supposed to have a thousand dollars in my account. Why do I only have 750? And if they said, well, remember you bought those headphones for $250, dollars you say, oh, okay. I should only have 750. But if they can't prove that to you or or tell you why that charge is on your card, then there you go. And that's the most basic version. I feel like guys are doing a lot better of those type of check-ins. Versus just saying, oh, my guy has my money. Don't worry about it.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think some of these new platforms have also made it easier to track what your financial advisor is doing. So you can have your account, you can look into your account on your on your app, wherever you go, you get the notifications that tell you what's going on. And it's just the heightened level of visibility and transparency. So that's a very good point. I want to talk a little bit about TopShot as well. So TopShot's kind of taken uh, the internet by storm in the past couple of weeks. I also read that you were an investor in the company that created it. So Dapper Labs, why'd you decide to make that investment?
1: When that investment came across my table probably now like 18 months ago or so, you know, being in the blockchain world and understand what they were trying to do with their flow blockchain and, and their perspectives going forward, I believed in them because they were the only one in my mind that made a successful consumer and product in CryptoKitties. So that was one of the main reasons why I did it. I saw what they were trying to do, what they said they were trying to accomplish. And being, you know, in the crypto space, we don't see successful consumer and products. CryptoKitties literally throttled the Ethereum network. So that's why I believe Dapper from the beginning and was fortunate enough to make that investment, be a part of Flow, be a part of NBA Top Shot, have done well there and and to have them as partners for Galaxy too.
0: I'm just curious, how do you find time? I'm sure that basketball and the rehab and the training takes up a lot of time. When do you find time to to invest in startups and to learn about blockchain and do all of this stuff?
1: So what I'm doing is a little bit different, but uh, my learning process basically happens all the time. Like I listen to podcasts and read books on the plane, on the bus. I shoot sometimes before games when I was kind of having my chill time in between working out or treatment or whatever it was.
0: What do you think the opportunities are for the NBA that kind of further deepen the Top Shot integration. I know there's talk of some in arena live benefits, some things like that. What do you think the future
1: holds there? With Top Shot, I mean obviously they're doing highlights. I think you're going to see NFTs like uh, Dallas Mavericks kind of talked about with tickets. I think uh, yeah, with cash not being labeled dirty because of COVID, people are going to start using mobile wallets more. You're going to be able to probably do things with seats. VR will probably be coming, which will play into the highlights in arena. That's the thing like NFTs, blockchain, VR are really kind of only limited by the imagination of people that are building. And the limitation is only on what the end consumer decides they want. So if the end consumer says, you know what, I don't like NFTs for highlights. I like NFTs for tickets. then. If TopShot pivots they can still take over the nft marketplace for tickets and partner with the Mavericks and the nBA as a whole and blah blah and so on and so forth it's it's really more like it's limited by the imagination of the builder and then whatever the end consumer takes to it's the the entertainment industry just kind of functions like that in general so I don't see the real cap on the technology I think the use will be determined by the people so plan highlights are given out rewards for if they could do something where in arena they could track which wallets are in the area and whoever has the most top shot or the rarest top shot gets to upgrade their seat there's so much here that like people are gonna have to think it put it out there and then consumers gonna have to say yay yeah, or nay it's almost that simple i mean it's complicated but it's that simple
0: yeah it'd be cool if uh virtual reality takes off and you can actually buy a a virtual seat that's actually courtside and sell that for more than kind of a virtual seat that's up further in the stands. Do you think we'll ever see like um, ownership in the NBA is changing? I've had the pleasure of talking to a couple of owners and there's a lot of younger people that are buying NBA teams. Do you feel like we'll ever see a decentralized and fan owned NBA franchise? Is that something
1: you've thought about? It's something I've kind of pitched the, the NBA on. I've said that, you know, they should start to think in that manner of like decentralized ownership and fractionalizing shares and, and starting to let some of the fans in because there are regulations uh, that will allow it to do so. I do think yeah. the way the NBA is structured as a nonprofit, it can kind of get dicey with their organizational structure and, and letting more transparency in. But it would be a great liquidity event. I think a lot of owners will be able to get cash very quickly and and involve their fans. And like you see with the Green Bay Packers, they're some of the most avid fans because they feel like they have a piece, a stake in the game. So, you know, it definitely can be something that if the NBA transitions to that model that could be huge for our ecosystem as a whole. That would be very cool.
0: I'd like to ask one question. It has to do with Robinhood's mission and kind of my personal mission. So Robinhood's mission is democratizing finance for all. And since you're sort of a uh, very financially savvy, just curious what that means to you. What does democratizing finance for all mean to you?
1: Well, immediately in my mind, I go to the accredited investor rules because I do a lot of uh, angel investing and, and things of that nature. Like they really limit what people have access to. You know, there, there is systemic racism kind of built into some of those rules and things like that. And so the mission of Robinhood obviously aligns with me in terms of, I want everybody to have a chance. You know, and if they have a certain yep. education and, and you see people like you can learn anything off of YouTube nowadays, you know what I mean? Um, in terms of like having ability to try to acquire knowledge, they should also have an ability to spend their money the way they want to. I know you want to protect the grandmas from Ponzi schemes and stuff like that, but I think that has to do more with governing bodies, vetting companies. And from there, like allowing more people to share in the, the possibility of wealth creation.
0: Yeah, there's a old model which equates how much money you have with how sophisticated you are. The accredited investor rule is one example. Then you have day trading limitations where if you have $25,000, for example, in a brokerage account or above, you can day trade as much as you want. And if you don't, you're limited. I think the the explanation is that's the threshold whereby we judge sophistication. but. Like you mentioned, some of these things can have negative effects regardless of whether they're intended or not, of keeping people with less means outside of the market. So I I agree that's an extremely important point and something that needs to evolve.
1: I agree with you 100 percent.
0: Cool, man. Well, thank you for your time. It's been really awesome uh, getting to know you and having this conversation. And uh, hopefully we'll we'll chat again sometime in the not too distant future.
1: Definitely. I'll be down. I can't wait. Be well. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it.
0: This has been an episode of Under the Hood. Under the Hood is produced by Sound Made Public. Original music by Eric Zieler and Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to Under the Hood on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be well. The opinions expressed are those of the guest speaker and not necessarily those of Robin Hood or its affiliates. The podcast is provided for informational purposes and not a recommendation of any security or investment strategy. All investments involve risk and loss of principal is possible. Robinhood is not affiliated with the guests or their companies. Robinhood Financial LLC member SIPC is a registered broker dealer. Robinhood Securities LLC member SIPC provides brokerage clearing services. Robinhood Crypto LLC provides cryptocurrency trading. All are subsidiaries of Robinhood Markets, Inc., which is also the distributor of this podcast. Robinhood Crypto is licensed to engage in virtual currency business activity by the New
1: York State Department of Financial Services.